This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, June 16th. I'm John Pop, And I'm Doug Blair. America is a golden land of opportunity, yet many of the country's young people don't see it that way. They believe the American dream is unattainable and that America is a racist and bigoted place full of evil oppressors. Ian Rowe, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of the new book, Agency, wants to change that narrative and prove to America's youth that there is something worth striving for. He joins the show to discuss his new book and how we can inspire young people to succeed. But before we get to Richard's conversation with Ian Rowe, let's hit our top news stories of the day. President Biden announced Wednesday he could use emergency powers to increase production if American-based oil companies don't increase output at their facilities. In a series of open letters, Biden threatened oil CEOs with federal action unless they increased output in the face of spiking gas prices. In one letter, Biden wrote, There is no question that Vladimir Putin is principally responsible for the intense financial pain the American people and their families are bearing. But amid a war that has raised gasoline prices more than $1.70 per gallon, historically high refinery profit margins are worsening that pain. Biden continued, My administration is prepared to use all reasonable and appropriate federal government tools and emergency authorities to increase refinery capacity and output in the near term and to ensure that every region of this country is appropriately supplied. The letters to oil companies like Shell and ExxonMobil don't give a date by which the companies need to increase their output. They simply state that they must do so in the near term. The Supreme Court declined to rule on whether states could defend an immigration rule enacted by former President Trump against migrants likely to become public charges. Republican-led states launched a campaign to renew the rule after the Biden administration abandoned it and declined to argue to bring it back. On Wednesday, the court said it would not weigh in on the case. An unsigned opinion released by the court stated it should not have been granted review in the case. For the first time in more than 100 years, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas will be represented by a Republican. Republican Maya Flores flipped Texas's 34th congressional district previously occupied by Democrat Congressman Filemon Vela, who resigned in March. The district went for President Biden in the 2020 election by 13 points. Flores earned 51% of the vote versus her opponent, Democrat Dan Sanchez's 43%. Since Vela retired before his term in Congress ended, Flores will finish out the remainder of Vela's term, set to expire in January. Flores will then have to run against Democrat Congressman Vicente Gonzalez in November. The race was also notable for representing the first election where Tesla CEO Elon Musk voted for a Republican. Musk claimed on Twitter Wednesday that he cast a ballot for Flores. He also predicted a red wave during the upcoming midterm elections while suggesting he might vote for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president in a theoretical 2024 election. After nearly 100 years, the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. will retire the Colonial's moniker and mascot after students complained it glorified the legacy of international colonialism, slavery, and racial discrimination. In a press release Wednesday, the university wrote, The George Washington University Board of Trustees has decided to discontinue the use of the Colonial's moniker based on the recommendation of the Special Committee on the Colonial's moniker. 
Both the board and special committee ultimately determined that given the division among the community about the moniker, it can no longer serve its purpose as a name that unifies. Officials say they will decide on a new moniker for the 2023-24 academic year, but will continue to use the colonial moniker until then. The push to remove the word colonial from George Washington's campus began back in 2019. Per the GW Hatchet, George Washington University school newspaper, student leaders changed the name of GW's fan section at sporting events from the Colonial Army to George's Army, the Colonial Central to the Student Services Hub, and administrators renamed an event once called Coffee with Colonials to Coffee with Alumni. That's all for headlines. Now stay tuned for Richard's conversation with Ian Rowe as they discuss how to get America's youth back on track. Conservative women, conservative feminists, it's true, we do exist. I'm Virginia Allen, and every Thursday morning on Problematic Women, Lauren Evans and I sort through the news to bring you stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. That is women whose views and opinions are often excluded or mocked by those on the so-called feminist left. We talk about everything from pop culture to politics and policy. Plus, we bring you an exclusive interview with a problematic lawmaker or conservative activist every second and fourth Tuesday of the month. Search for Problematic Women wherever you get your podcasts. And we are also problematic on social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram. Hello, I'm Richard Reinch. I'm at the 2022 Heritage Resource Bank Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to interview Ian Rowe one of our featured speakers at the conference. He's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Before that, he was the CEO of Public Prep, a nonprofit group of charter schools in the South Bronx and the lower east side of Manhattan. Ian Rowe, we're glad to interview you today. Good morning, Richard. How are you? Great. Wonderful. Ian, you have just written a book uh, entitled Agency. Uh, What's that book about? What are you trying to communicate in it? Well, thank you very much for having me on. As you mentioned, for the last decade, I ran a network of public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and I'm now launching a new international baccalaureate high school also in the Bronx. And the reason I run schools is I want young people to know that they can do hard things, that they live in a good, if not great, country, that with the right ingredients, they can lead a life of their own choosing. And unfortunately, over the last decade and really accelerated over the last few years, I've really gotten the sense that young people are immersed in a very defeatist narrative, a narrative around victimhood about all the things that they can't do in this country. So I've written agency as what I hope to be an empowering alternative to these meta-narratives, which I I can describe. Excellent. So agency being you are trying to remind them uh, that they have free will, that they have agency that they have the ability to make choices, virtuous choices, that will lead to human flourishing. In your experience, um, in your career experience, what are the biggest barriers? I mean, you've mentioned um, a narrative. Uh, You mentioned uh, accepting that perhaps I should fail or that everyone is is against me. What are the biggest barriers to uh, income, social mobility in America? Well, like with most things, the number one factor, the, the sort of foundation of society is the strength of the American family. And a lot of my work continues to tie back to 
timing of family formation is one of the most critical decisions that young people can make. But let me just step back for a second and describe what I do think young people are sort of wallowing right now. And there's what I call this blame the system narrative and also a blame the victim narrative. In the blame the system narrative, if you're not achieving the American dream, the reason is America itself, that America itself is this oppressive nation that based on superficial characteristics like gender or race, you're oppressed. You know, there's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Capitalism itself is evil. And these systems are so rigged against you that you as an individual are essentially powerless unless there's a massive government intervention or some other massive social transformation. So obviously that's a very debilitating message if you're a young person, right, and you're hearing that. But on the other side, there's what I call blame the victim. In that conception, if you're not successful in this great country, it's your fault. It's some pathology that you have. You didn't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Completely ignoring the fact that, you know, young people, there's always an element of personal responsibility, but if a young person hasn't, had the right kind of nurturing from a strong family, strong faith-based organization, strong educational opportunity, then it's very, very difficult for them independently to overcome these hurdles. So these two meta-narratives of blame the system and blame the victim, in my view, add up to a singular lie that's robbing young people of agency. And I put forth a framework called free, family, religion, education and entrepreneurship that I think are the four pillars that most reliably predict whether whether or not a young person will be able to lead a life of flourishing. Thinking about your education efforts and the students that you're trying to educate, you know, there's a lot of dismal data, as you're aware, of Americans in the bottom half of the income scale in terms of assets, ownership, income. Uh, flat incomes is also there's uh, a family dimension there as well in many cases. What are, as we think about uh, these barriers here as well, for those in the bottom half of, of the income uh, system, is this, do you see this as primarily structural or is there something else involved? And that's, you know, this sort of personal responsibility element, but also an element of I can, you know, you can be asked to do more and you could respond and do more. What, how should we think about the challenges facing people uh, in the sure. lower end of income? Well, you, you're asking about um, you know, income, and there's a lot of attention often focused on something called the racial wealth gap. And people use that because if you look at the data based on the 2019 survey of consumer finances, if you look solely at race, the median wealth of the average white family is about $160,000 more than the median wealth of the average black family. And so people say, see, that's the proof of both historical discrimination and contemporary discrimination. And there's nothing that black people can do to overcome that hurdle. Well, if you actually look at the, the same data in the 2019 survey of consumer finances, you find if you take into account just two factors, the whole uh, financial situation is, 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 exact, is exactly flipped. The median wealth of the average black married college-educated family 
is about $160,000 more than the median wealth of the average white single parent family. So what that indicates is that there are factors beyond just race that determine whether or not you can be economically successful as well as successful in every other uh, aspect of life. So that's why it's so important that young people learn about information like what's called the success sequence. If you've ever heard that data, basically if you finish just your high school degree, get a full-time job of any kind just so you learn the dignity and discipline of work, and if you have children, marriage first, 97% of millennials who follow that pathway of decision-making avoid poverty, and the vast majority enter the middle class. Those are decisions that young people do have in their control. And the reason I've written agency is to help young people know that there are behaviors that they can say yes to, as opposed to always listening to a debilitating narrative about everything they can't do. These entrepreneurial schools that you've been involved with and, and continue to be involved with, how do students respond to this message? I mean, in, in many ways, it sounds like you are uh, going back to an earlier tradition in American public education of also trying to emphasize the soul, that the soul and knowledge itself working together to produce a whole rounded person. Yeah, the, our, the new high school that we're launching is organized around the four cardinal virtues of courage, justice, wisdom, and temperance. And the reason we've chosen these four cardinal virtues is that obviously it's important that kids learn about math and reading and writing and science, but there is an aspect of the human dimension, that there are ways of being, that there's a moral structure that will help shape your life. I, in fact, define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment. The force of your free will guided by moral discernment. So the question is, if, you, if each one of us has if, uh, agency, has free will, where does the ability to learn what is right or what is wrong? So think of agency like a vector or velocity. Velocity is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So the reason I've created free as a framework, family, religion, education, entrepreneurship, those are the pillars that can help young people, if they embrace them, understand with a strong family that that means certain responsibilities for how you lead your life. Religion, a personal faith commitment, gives you a certain moral code to live by. Education, especially education driven by school choice, means that you get to go to a school of your choosing, best designed for your interests. And then entrepreneurship is all about work and how you build wealth for not only your family, but the next generation. And so yes, these are elements that I think are very important that young people learn that's also in their sphere of control. Listening to you talk about uh, the school system, it, it sounds wonderful. What are the barriers you face in building it and expanding it and offering it to increasing numbers of students and families? Yeah, this is one of the challenges in the, in the district in which I lead schools, District 8 in the South Bronx. Of the 2,000 students that started ninth grade in the year 2015, four years later, only 2% graduated from high school ready for college, meaning that they started ninth grade and dropped out along the way 
or they actually did earn their high school diploma, but still could not do reading nor math without remediation if they were to go to college, right? So I don't know which is worse. You drop out or you actually do what you're supposed to do and you still can't compete with everyone else going to college or, or compete at a college standard. And yet in this district, there's a cap on the number of charter schools that can be open. So if you had a great idea to create a great school for these kids, you couldn't do it. That's, a, that's an example of a real barrier, a real systemic barrier. So there is some validity to this idea of there being systemic challenges, that being one of them for school choice. And though a young person still, once you're given that opportunity, you have to know what are the ways of being, what are the decisions that I have in my control that will allow me to lead the life of my own choosing. Sounds to me like the systemic challenge is government. government government getting in the way of entrepreneurial education efforts like yours, uh, governments, uh, uh, as I read, trying to put regulations back on charter schools that you know, make them face the same hurdles the regular school system faces. Uh, the students that try to enter your school, are they subject to this charter lottery system that so much has been said, uh, written about, portrayed in New York? Oh, yeah. I mean, right now, for the schools that I led for 10 years, there were about 2,000 students in our schools, kindergarten through eighth grade, but we had nearly 5,000 kids on the wait list every single year. And these are families desperate for their kids to have a shot at the American dream. But solely because of a government regulation, there isn't a choice, which, by the way, exists for virtually every middle and upper class family in the country that has the ability to send their child to a private school or move to the suburbs or, you know, or just have choice. And yet the very vulnerable kids all across the country, from Appalachia to Chicago to New York City, the first rung of getting on the pathway to prosperity is having, well, one is having a strong family and two, having access to a great school. So that is a real impediment. Thinking about uh, this effort uh, that, that you're launching here, um, many people listening, uh, wondering, you know, how, how could I do something? Do you, do you need support from other people uh, outside? I mean, I, I think a lot of our listeners would appreciate that opportunity. Uh, how could they help you? Well, the most important, well, first of all, we would certainly love the support. Every charter school, from a financial perspective, has to raise money in its initial year. So Vertex Partnership Academies is raising capital right now. But really, the, the idea is that we raise philanthropy only for a short period of time to then be able to actually uh, flourish on public dollars, to demonstrate that we can get phenomenal results with kids in the same neighborhoods, in the same buildings, where other kids are being failed by the traditional system. So we want to be able to prove that even working in sometimes even less than what the government provides to traditional district schools, um, we can have a flourishing great school for our kids. But in terms of how people can help, I often say, you know, start within your own community. Um, look at the, the, the opportunities that either exist or don't exist for the kids in your schools. Run for school board. I ran for school board in my own hometown because I wasn't satisfied with what I was seeing uh, in terms of the offerings for our school district. And I think across the country, you're seeing parents who are saying, you know what, after COVID, after seeing you know, attempts at potentially indoctrination and other things happening in schools, parents are saying, you know what, I want to help elsewhere, but let me start with my own hometown first. So thinking about uh, American conservatism, which has obviously supported for a number of decades all manner of entrepreneurial efforts to increase choice uh, in education, 
what's the next frontier or next strategic move that should be made to sort of deepen and continue the efforts that you're involved in and many others? Well, I, I hope that the cat is out of the bag in terms of parental involvement and power and recognition whether it be the Virginia governor's race or lots of initiatives across the country where school boards are being replaced because, A, they didn't have schools open during COVID, or suddenly they're teaching content, which is questioning the very basic ideas of man and woman, uh, that is portraying race as being the dominant factor in a young person's life. Very debilitating narrative. So I hope the next big step is that parents, not only during election time, although I think that is um, obviously an important time in terms of changing our leadership, but more parents recognizing that they don't have to be satisfied with substandard performance of their schools, and they have power, whether it be running their own school boards or organizing themselves or, frankly, exiting the traditional K-12 system, homeschooling or entering private religious schools. I think that's a very good thing for our country. Ian Rowe, thank you so much for joining us for the Daily Signal podcast. We appreciate your efforts. Thank you very much. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. And please leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Doug Blair. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.